Welcome to the Field Reports podcast. This episode, we have Professor Kenneth Wilson, an evolutionary ecologist who works on insect and parasite ecology at the University of Lancaster. The main issue with long-term projects is, is, is the funding. Uh, talking of uh, climate change, how do you think climate change is going to affect the spread of uh, army worms? Hi Ken, thanks for being on the show. Could you briefly explain about what you work on? in how our animals evolve to live in environments that's full of these diseases and parasites and how the host evolves adaptations to, to those pathogens in the environment. That's sort of the general area and specifically I tend to work on insect diseases mostly, um, particularly virus and, and bacterial infections of insects. So one of the major projects that you um, that you work on is on army worms. You're kind of waging a war against the army worm. Um, so we'd like to talk about that in detail later. Before the recording, Ken shared an article written by Richard Poplack in The Guardian. He describes the army worm as this. Their heads resemble human brains that have been caramelized with a blowtorch. Mandibles jammed into the bottom of the face part glisten with alien goo. In their most gregarious morphological variation, black and dun stripes run down their bodies, mimicking something an avid golfer would wear to a funeral. They're speckled with sparse little hair like the budding moustache of a teenage Lothario, while their stubby legs appear to have been distributed randomly and without a consideration for balance and mobility. So where are your field sites? Is it all over Africa? Um, it's tended to be mostly in recent years in uh, Tanzania, um, also in Zambia, and I started off working in, in Kenya. So those are the three countries that I've mainly, mainly done my work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Could you, could you describe us a typical day uh, during your field work, if there is such a thing? Um, a typical day, it, it depends what we're trying to do. So sometimes we're doing a field trial, and that will involve sort of like scouting the locations where these insects are present and then mainly what we're doing on the applied side of the work is to use a, um, a, bio, a natural disease of, of these albumin particulars as a biological controlling. So a lot of the, uh, the field trials we're doing is, is testing the efficacy of, of this biological pesticide against the pest. So that involves setting up um, uh, field plots, uh, doing quadrant counts, to look at the density of the insects, spraying them with the biological pesticide, and then on a daily basis um, uh, doing more quadrat counts. As an ecologist, that's what we do, we like to do quadrat counts. And also collecting samples for um, analysis, so molecular analysis, and analysis of um, virus infection levels. So it's a lot of uh, uh, fairly mundane, a lot of time, um, collecting and, and counting. So what do you do when you're not collecting the data? Um, I'm thinking about doing it, <laughs> um, or inputting data, um, or thinking about the next experiment, or thinking about the next day's activities. Um, usually it's fairly full on, when I'm not sat around waiting for things to happen, um, which you often are, um, then 
uh, free time, I would uh, maybe try to uh, read a novel. Right. Do you use um, any technology to assist in your in your fieldwork? Maybe some apps or any equipment? Um, mostly, it's fairly low tech. Partly deliberately so. We're in Africa now, which um, is often very low resource. So a lot of the things that I might do in the UK, it's just not feasible to do it. So we tend to keep things low tech if we can. So. Um, when I go field work, I'm armed with a Swiss Army knife um, and some entomological forceps, yeah. um, a torch, and that's about it, really. When you when you pack for your field work, do you have like any peculiar thing that you always carry with you? Um, apart from the things that I've, I've mentioned, um, and lots and lots of epidural tubes for collecting samples, um, it's, I guess the one. Thing that most people probably don't think is that I have a, a, a lightweight safari jacket which has lots of pockets in it. And when you're doing field work, often it's where I put these things that I've collected. So I have this jacket that has lots of pockets in it. Yeah. I always make sure that that goes with me. Um, and then when I'm at the airport, I can buy a packet of jelly babies because <laughs> one of the few sort of things that um, it's not easily accessible in. in most of the trees I go to, that's financial trees. Okay, um, so many people have actually told me that they get inspired um, by observing uh, the nature outside and they get a lot of ideas. So could you tell us how your field work shapes your ideas for your research? Well, I guess the main thing that I work on now is diseases of arguments, and that came from field observations. Um, that I made 25 years ago. So I, when I first went to Africa, it was to, to study the migration of armyworms. So that involved going to field sites, collecting uh, armyworms, and then bringing them back to, to Nairobi, where I had a, a makeshift uh, laboratory, and then moving them through to the moth stage so that I could do some work on the, on the adult moths. And what I found was that when I brought the samples back, uh, to laboratories, and very often they die of this horrible, gooey sort of disease, uh, which I fairly quickly discovered with a, with a virus, a bacterial virus. And so that got me thinking how can this armyworm be such a major pest in Africa when it seems to be so susceptible to this, to this disease? And I, I subsequently visited outbreaks where um, 90% of the pathogens were dying of this virus. And so I thought, well, if that virus could be used, or if that virus is, appears to be so effective against the elements, maybe we can use it as a biological control agent. So that was when I first started getting interested in this. And it turned out that other people had already thought of that and made similar observations. And uh, so 25 years later, I'm still working on that same idea as to, as to how we can use this natural disease as a biological control agent. And also the, the nature of the interaction between the virus and its host. So, um, why is it? So we know from molecular analyses that we've done in the last few years that nearly all of these armyworms are carrying the virus uh, at very low levels. So, so how is that that interaction persisted so long? And how can can individual um, larvae and moths carry this virus without it having what appears to be not much of an effect most of the time? I mean, and at other times the virus erupts and, and kills the insect in a very sort of gruesome way. Could you tell us about the Army Worm project? 
So in Africa, I, I've been working on the African army run, Spidoptera exempta, for uh, 25 years plus. And that is a major crop pest that mainly feeds on graminaceous plants, so testarials, and in particular maize, which is a very important uh, crop in many African countries. And it periodically has these big outbreaks where uh, it can devastate large numbers of countries over very large areas. So I'm interested in the army work, the African army run, um, because of this periodic eruption that it has when it can cause major food security issues. Um, but the situation become more interesting and complicated um, in the last uh, year or so with the arrival of the fall army run um, from the Americans, this is Dr. Fujipurda. This is a new invasive pest species that has, um, has come from probably from Central or South America to Africa, first of all to uh, West Africa, uh, Nigeria and neighbouring countries, and then uh, more recently into Southern Africa, uh, starting with Zambia and Zimbabwe, moving progressively south and now progressively north. And it's, it's now present in probably about 25 or 26 different countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. So the big concern is this, this pest which has arrived in the Americas, it's it's known to be a very damaging pest in the Americas, but also got the damaging African army run. So we've got this perfect storm of, of two big pests, all causing damage to the staple food crop of, of maize. Okay, so so don't pesticides work on this um, these worms? Uh, chemicals are very effective against uh, African army run. Um, so farmers have traditionally used chemicals when they have uh, African army worm. Before army worm, um, it behaves in a different way and also it's known to have developed resistance to many chemicals in the Americas due to overuse of chemical pesticides. And with the recent invasion of the fall army worm, uh, it, it appears that the, the new immigrants from the Americas are resistant to, to the chemicals that have traditionally been used against army worms. Um, so there's a bit um, a lot of um, dismay that uh, farmers have sprayed their crops with, with these chemicals and they've not been effective. And that's, we think, partly due to resistance and partly because of the way the insect behaves. So it tends to, to bury itself into the, the whirl or the growing part of, of the maize plant, and that makes it very difficult for contact insecticides to, to, um, to, to uh, damage the, the insect pest. So it's, it's a big issue because um, what has traditionally been used to control army worms doesn't appear to be very effective against the new fall army worm. So, so that's why you're doing uh, research on biological pest control um, for this species, right? Could you describe um, about the virus that you use and how that interacts with the, um, with the caterpillars? Yes, yeah, so, the, so the viruses are uh, known as baculate viruses. Um, and in particular, we use um, NPVs, which are nucleopolyhydrosis viruses. And these are very specific viruses to insects and mainly to Lepidoptera, so to, to, um, to, to moth caterpillars. And they're very specific. So the virus that we use against African armyworm, as far as we know, only kills African armyworm. Um, so it's not going to be effective against fall armyworm, this new one. But there is a the virus against the fall army worm, which 
may be effective against African polonga. So we're currently doing um, laboratory trials to test the effectiveness of of both the, the virus that's used against African polonga and the virus that's used against polonga to see whether there's any synergy in there. So whether the, the virus for fall on drug will also kill the afternoon drug and the virus for afternoon drug will also kill the fall on drug. And once we know that, then we'd be in a position to make recommendations about which virus might be developed for control of hopefully both of those uh, on drug tests. So, so could you describe how you actually got the idea that you can use wireless to get rid of pests? Um, well, people have known for, for some time that these bacteroviruses are effective at killing uh, insects. Um, so, in, for example, in uh, parts of North America, they used fairly routinely to, to kill um, uh, forest pests. Uh, the, the challenge in, in Africa with these sort of omnivore pests on, on uh, open savannas is that the viruses are uh, susceptible to ultraviolet radiation. So obviously there's a lot of sunlight in in, uh, in many parts of Africa, and that sort of means that um, it, it should have uh, its limited efficacy. Um, but the field trials that we've done in, in Africa um, have suggested that even if we use the virus at the midday when UV levels are at their highest, uh, that they can be very effective for control against, against the omicron. The, the main difference between these biological pesticides and chemical pesticides is it takes longer to kill the host insect. So whereas a, a chemical might work in a matter of, of minutes or hours, for the uh, bacteroviruses, it probably takes three or four or five days to kill the host. Um, so that means if we're going to use them to control the pest, then we need to educate farmers not to expect that sort of instant kill that they, they would usually get with chemicals. Um, but most of the farmers that we talk to are, are okay with that because um, the caterpillars, because they're feeling sick, because they've got this virus replicating in their body, the caterpillars um, uh, reduce their feeding level so that the, although the caterpillars are still alive, they're not damaging the crop so much. Um, and the farmers also are aware that these chemicals that they're spraying on crops um, are damaging not only um, the insects that they're spraying, but also beneficial insects like pollinators, uh, the wider environment, and of course human health as well. Because most of these farmers, if they can afford pesticides, they probably can't afford the safety gear required to use them effectively. So they're not using face masks and they're not using gloves and such like. Um, so, so the farmers that we speak to are very keen to, to look at these uh, biological alternatives which they know are going to be safer, um, even if they take a little bit longer to work. Um, uh, so when you talk about biological control, there, there are a lot of other ways as well, right? For example, um, maybe planting more trees in, in the monoculture so that there are more birds and birds come in and feed the caterpillars. Or maybe there are if there are more wasps, they might parasitize, they might lay eggs in the caterpillars, which eat the caterpillar from inside uh, as they develop. So w do we know anything about these, uh, these kind of measures? Um. We know that um, there are a number of parasitic wasps, as you say, that are effective for controlling both astronomical and fall on worm, and that if you make the habitats more effective for for those insects to, to survive, then you will have greater levels of natural biological 
controlled by these natural enemies, by parasitic and by predators and so on. Um, and it is true that um, in many parts of, of Africa, maize is by far the most dominant crop that's grown. And in, in those uh, situations where a more diverse um, cropping system is used, then it's very likely that we're going to get greater levels of natural control. Um, there's also um, the potential, therefore, um, uh, locally grown plants to be used as, as control agents against these pests. So a lot of plants produce chemicals that can be extracted from uh, the leaves or the seeds, which are toxic to, to insects. So I've been involved in projects in, in Zambia, for example, where we've used local plants and uh, extracted those botanical uh, insecticides, and they can be effective against uh, the pest as well. So it's not just chemicals, I think, for the full army worm, um, most people believe that we're going to need a call an integrated pest management approach. So, uh, in some situations, you may need chemicals. In others, uh, you might want to use biological pesticides, botanicals, uh, change the cropping system, use different um, crop varieties that are more resistant to the pest, and so on. And that by combining these different approaches, that we might have more effective control against the crop pest. Okay, um, so you, you've also been working on some long-term projects, um, uh, for example, on the so soy sheep, is that, am I pronouncing that right? Um, so could you briefly describe what the project is about? Uh, the soy sheep project, it's, it's been running for uh, over 30 years now, um, and it's a long-term collaboration um, by a, a lot of different scientists currently being uh, run predominantly by Justin Penton in Edinburgh, um, and it's trying to bring together lots of different research approaches to understand the long-term uh, dynamics and genetics and parasitology of this remote population of uh, primitive sheep living on the island, uh, the island group of St Kilda. And so it's still been going on a long time, and focus has changed gradually over, over time. Uh, but what these long-term studies, like the Fosheep, allow us to do is to, is to continually refine our view of how the world works and how um, the dynamics of populations change in relation to environmental factors, such as uh, climate change and um, other uh, uh, man-made and natural changes in the environment. Uh, talking of uh, climate change, how do you think climate change is going to affect the spread of army worms? That's a really interesting question. Uh, we don't really know the answer to that, but what we do know from work on African army worm is that we tend to get these big outbreaks when we've had periods of drought followed by periods of good rains. And we don't quite know why that is. Uh, we've got a number of ideas uh, for why it might be. Um, and in fact, this year we've had good rains in Africa followed by a period of drought, so it sort of fixed that scenario. And with climate change, I think we're most likely to see um, more of these drought periods followed by more periods where we've got plenty of rain. So we might have this sort of perfect storm, if you like, where we've got years in which there's drought, in which uh, the maize crop will, will not do so well because there's not so much rain to, to feed them. 
um, followed by the times when we had plenty of rain, but with that rain comes the army run pests. So the farmer might be able to grow a good um, lot of corn or sweet corn or maize, um, but then that maize may be affected by the crop pests. So with climate change, I think it's very likely that we might see more more situations where we've got these, these uh, crop pests uh, devastating the crops that are able to grow in the good seasons when there's plenty of rain. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, going back to the long-term projects, could you tell us what's the secret behind the success of any long-term projects? Because if it has to run for 30 years, mm. there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong when, when, you're, when you're doing a very long-term project. Could you tell us about that? Okay. Uh, the, main, the main issue with long-term projects is, is, is the funding to keep them going. Um, that's been true of the So Sheep project. It's also been true of some of the other long-term projects I've been involved with, including the work that we do on the army rounds. So typically, funding is for uh, usually at most three years, occasionally five years. So that means that you're continually looking for funding to keep the project going. And with a lot of studies like uh, the so sheep project and long-term studies on bird populations. The longer, more continuous data you have, the more information you've got. So you just need to miss a year, and you've got a gap in in your knowledge, and that can have big impacts. Um, so the biggest challenge for long-term projects is, is getting that funding in and keeping it going. And the success of the so sheep project in particular, I think, has come about through having collaborations of a lot of different scientists with different levels of expertise and things like uh, genetics in parasitology in, in vegetation in uh, uh, selection in a whole range of different areas and those different people have been able to secure funding for the bits of work that they do and by doing so secure the long-term funding of that particular project so the associate project has had uh, continuous funding for for over 30 years, with different people, different principal investigators taking the lead in, in generating the, the income that keeps the, the long-term data collection going. Okay, um, so could you tell us um, what you think is a major unanswered question uh, in your field and what you would like to answer, perhaps? Um, I guess the, the most pressing one at the moment is what's going to happen with the full army worm in Africa. It's spread at an alarming rate throughout um, sub-Saharan Africa. In, in about, I think, 16 months, it's spread from a, a, a single location in West Africa through to nearly all of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so there are lots of unanswered questions with that, such as where, where exactly did they come from? Was it a single invasion or was it multiple invasions? How is um, we know it's spreading. How far will that spread go? Will it move out of Africa into uh, the Arabian Peninsula and into southern Europe, and from there into other parts of, of Europe and into into Asia, for example? Um, is this a one-off? Perhaps um, we'll find that the fallen worm is not so well adapted to African conditions. Maybe this is a, a unique event, and, and the thing will naturally die away. I think that's unlikely, but it's possible. We also don't know how the new invasive species is going to interact with the native endemic African army worm. So will one species outcompete the other in the long term? And we also don't know what the interaction is going to be between the, the fallen army worm and uh, diseases and pathogens and parasites. 
So might we find that the virus that um, uh, lives with the afternoon worm might also spread into the forelong worm? Or will it's the parasitoids that are already there attacking afternoon worm, will they also be effective against the forelong worm? So there's lots of questions related to, to the spread and the persistence of this forelong worm that I think is going to keep me busy for probably the rest of my career. So how far can these moths fly? They are highly migratory. They can fly probably 100 kilometers a night, and certainly the afternoon worm I know can do that, and do that over several successive nights. So they can, they can probably spread several um, thousands of kilometers, um, uh, certainly hundreds of kilometers during their own lifetime. And over multiple generations, that means that they can spread um, over vast distances. And, and we see this with the fall army worm um, each year, uh, migrating from uh, southern parts of the United States and Mexico and, and areas like that on a seasonal basis into um, northern parts of the USA and into, as far as into, into Canada. Um, so that probably accounts for at least some of the spread, the rapid spread that we're seeing with the fall army room in Africa. That it's, it's using the, the winds that are dominant this time of year as a vehicle to spread um, into different parts of Africa. So is it a directed navigation or do we know anything about the navigation at all? We don't really know much about the navigation. What we do know from lots of work that's been done on African army worm in the 1980s, maybe 1780s, is that if there aren't any strong winds, then uh, they tend to disperse away um, from a point source. So um, they're not like locusts in that they're, they're, they're swarming um, as adults in, in a particular direction together as a cohesive unit. Yeah. But if there is a dominant wind, then we know from radar studies that they'll, they'll tend to move on those dominant winds. Mm-hmm. And when that mass of, of moths encounter uh, rainstorms, the convective winds associated with those rainstorms tends to gather the moths together. And when there's rain, it forces them to land and to, to lay their eggs. And that's when we get outbreaks, when we've got lots of, of moths all uh, laying their eggs simultaneously in one place. Right, so, uh, okay, my final question. Um, what would you change about the way science is practiced if you had the power to change? The boring answer, but the most sort of important one, is, is the funding situation. And we talked about long-term uh, studies and, and the challenges that they face. And I think uh, I spend an awful lot of my time, as do most sort of senior academics, simply writing rapid proposals to get funding. And if I could change one thing, it would be to change the funding landscape. So basically you give people the funding they need to do to get on with doing, doing the science rather than spending most of my time writing the grant applications to get the funding and then, and then passing it on to other people to do the fun stuff mainly, which is to, to do the field work and to do the laboratory work to answer those important questions. That was Professor Ken Wilson. I'm your host Ravindra and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out journalofanimalecology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.